Good morning. You guys don't know who I am. Um, my name is Ryan, Ryan Emmel, one of the pastors here at Philippi. Excited to preach the word today, um, but also trembling. Every time this, I have this opportunity, it's, it's like this mixture of joy and fear all at once. Uh, especially this passage, as we just read it, it's weighty. It's not easy to understand. Um, but I'm eager to dive in that, uh, that lyric in that last, one of those last songs that we sang, that he calls us out of death and draws us into life. That's a main theme, actually, of the, the passage today. Uh, that God calls every human being out of death into life through the gospel. And today, we want to hear his voice clearly. We want to respond to him. So let's go before him and uh, submit ourselves under his word. Let's pray. Father, you have graciously spoken. You have opened up your mouth. You, you have spoken promises. You've, you've spoken life. And God, I pray that you would open our ears. Pray that you would open our hearts. God, give me the confidence in your word that I need to open my mouth today, not confidence in myself. I pray that as we walk away from this message, that there would be no confidence in the flesh, no confidence in the messenger, all confidence in you and in your message, and that your message would, would get through. Lord Jesus, we, we make this request in, the, in, in your name, we ask, amen. The gospel call goes out. It goes out like, like a... Like a like a train conductor, calling out all aboard to all who would listen. And, and, and it goes out and, and the, it's received by the heart. And the heart um, interacts with it. The heart responds to it. God, in a sense, is kind of like a conductor. He's calling out to you. And he's saying, come out of death and into life. Now, this call has been coming since humanity began. Am I cutting out? Uh, since humanity began, this call's been going out. And every human being responds. There, um, in a sense, if the train conductor is calling you all aboard, we all have this opportunity to say, okay, I believe this train conductor so therefore, I'm going to get in the train. Um, the, this idea of, of, you know, this call coming and choosing to get in and going along for the ride for a destination. This is the way that the Bible speaks of salvation. It is present, but it's also future. We enter in, but we wait. We are saved but we will be saved. You guys know that in the scriptures. So there's a now and there's a later. There's a present and there's a future. In the past, the gospel came through types. Um, for the children of Israel, the gospel came through the type of the promise of the land of Canaan, the promised land. You also have the type of the Sabbath, where God says, I want you to rest. So this is actually going to be the focus of the attention. Like the type that came, the type of the gospel that came to the children of Israel was this promise of rest. And the author is going to make this argument that, look, you guys, this promise, it's still here. It's still being presented to you. It's still being offered to you. This all aboard is still being given to you. But this call, this gospel call, this, this call out of death and into life, so to speak, it came through types. And every single time that it came to them, they had an opportunity to respond. Do they believe the conductor and step in? Or are they gonna stand there and say, 
you know what? Honestly, I don't think that train's going anywhere, so I ain't getting in. So these types, like, you know, like we said, the promised land, the Sabbath, maybe even the tabernacle. The author's going to, basically what he's been getting at right now, is he's saying the point of the types is past. We're no longer dealing with types anymore. We're no longer dealing with shadows anymore. We're no longer dealing with the things that point to the future real thing anymore. We're dealing with the real thing. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament spoke of. And we don't have an Old Testament, New Testament dichotomy where it's like God is different here in the Old Testament and now he's, he's, it's a different God and acts in a different way. We have a continuity between the Old and the New Testament. You'll see this repeated. But this author, he seems to be pounding in. Look, you guys, the, the types are, are in the past now. Look, Jesus is it. Jesus is better. And he starts talking about Moses uh, and the angels and the prophets. And here he's going to bring out Joshua. And basically what he's saying is like, okay, guys, yeah, uh, the prophets were great, but guess who's better? The, Moses was, was an awesome leader, you guys, right? But guess who's better? Angels are pretty awesome, but guess who's better? Moses and the angels and the prophets, and then he's going to get into Joshua. Joshua was like, he was a pretty awesome leader. But he's still going to say, guess who's better? Guess who's better? Guess who's better and, and the fulfillment of all these things. In essence, Jesus is the, the most complete in the most clear way that God can communicate to us, I have rest for my people. He's been saying it all along. He, 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 he alluded to it. He spoke, he spoke it through types. And now Jesus is the most clear way to say it. God's almost saying, like, look, I've said it all the possible ways I could, all the times that I could, and now the, the shadows are past, and now the final most clear way that I can say to you, I will give you my rest, has come. Joshua is going to be presented also as a type. You'll see that. Jesus is better than all the types. So as, you, as I said, my rest, this, this phrase, my rest, you're going to see that that was a type of the gospel in the past. And so what we've seen is that not only is Jesus better, but now we know that the message of Jesus, listen, not only is Jesus better, but the message of Jesus is weightier. Why? Because this is it. There's no other way to say it. There's no better way to say, leave death and enter into life other than the, the person of Jesus. So the message is weightier. And I think that, that what we're dealing with in this passage of scripture is really dealing with the message of Jesus and how we handle it. How do we handle the message of Jesus? How are we hearing it? When it's coming to us, how are we responding? Like when the conductor's like all aboard, what is your heart saying? How are you handling this message? This idea of holding fast is repeated. Hold fast to what you have received. This confession of Jesus, this confidence in Jesus, this um, the fact that you believe in him and you trust in him, hang on to that. That's, this is repeated in, in 3.6, 3.14, and 4.14. He says that the words, um, if, in, starting in verse 3, 6, uh, yeah, chapter 3, verse 6, he says, Christ is faithful uh, over God's house as a son, and we are his house if, indeed, we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. In 3.14, he says it again in a different way. 
For we have come to share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. And again in 4.14, as I think Sam's going to handle this, this verse. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. So the, the larger context here is a concern for what? That these guys are letting go of their confidence in Jesus. The, his concern is, look, you guys, the better than, than all the shadows is here. And you guys are drifting from the, the, the reality and the true thing here. You're drifting from it for, for all the types. And Jesus is better than all the types. And you guys are beginning to let go of your confidence. And he's concerned. So he's, so he's bringing it back to this idea of how you hear. How are you handling this message? Hold fast. And I looked that up in the Greek just to kind of like get an idea um, of, of what that word means, hold fast, or what that phrase means. And um, the best way that I can say it in modern vernacular is, is white knuckle. I mean, grab a hold of it like your life depends on it. it it's white knuckling. So like, basically the author is saying, God is saying, white knuckle your confession, your confession and your confidence in Jesus. Hang on to it. Don't let go of it. Don't loosen your grip. And so that's kind of the, the larger theme of the context here. So in my thesis here is going to be good gospel hearing practices are going to be the thing that white knuckle your confession of Jesus. Good gospel hearing practices will white knuckle your confession and your confidence in Jesus. So we, we really see two imperatives in this passage of scripture. One is to fear, in verse one. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear. And the second one is to strive. That's in verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same disobedience. So fear. So, so God, listen, God wants you to fear and to strive concerning this message of Jesus. Is that strange? Is this a strange idea that God would want you to fear? And it's actually not the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. So there is a healthy fear that God wants us to have. So what does he want us to fear? Two things that God wants us to fear. Failing and falling. And does anybody have a fear of failure here? I have a fear of falling. So, so God here is actually wanting you to actually have a fear of both of those. And you'll, you'll, see, you'll see what I mean. So first, feel, fear of failing. So failing what? Let's read verse one. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So what is, is he wanting us to fear failing at? failing at reaching this rest. So he said, there's a promise, you guys. There's a promise of rest, and you guys might not reach it. So I want you to fear that you might not reach it. The author of this, who we, we don't know, but ultimately the author, the Holy Spirit, is telling you to fear this possibility. So how in the world would we fail to reach this rest. Well, keep reading in verse two. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So how do you fail? How do you fail concerning this reaching, this rest? What did it say? It's this message that came to you. So he's comparing the children of Israel. He's like, a message of good news came to them, and a message of good news came to you, and, and they failed to reach their 
type of, the, uh, of this gospel, rest. And now this same thing is coming to you. The same type of message is coming to you. This good news is coming to you. So how do we fail? And it says, but um, they were not united by faith. So it's the idea of when the message of Jesus comes to you, there's no faith in you to believe it. You're like, you're like the, the, the person that's called by the conductor, the train conductor, and you're like, you know, I don't think this train is, is going where they say it's going to go. When you receive the gospel and, it, and there's no faith to, to mix in with that hearing, then, then you're not benefiting, he's saying. And he wants you to fear that. So, so really, if we were to sum it up, it, w- it would be that he wants us to fear this habit of hearing the gospel without faith. He wants us to fear that. And the second thing he wants us to fear is falling. He wants us to fear falling. So look at verse 3. We who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So let's, let's, let's pause there for a second. I've been reading that as, for we who have believed entered that rest. I've, I've been hearing that as the moment you're converted, you enter God's rest. And even though there, that's, that's true, I think that the argument here is more that the type of people that enter God rest, God's rest are those who believe. In other words, there's nobody on the train that didn't believe the dest- that, that the train was going to take them to the destination. Heaven is not going to be full of people that are continually not believing, continually not trusting in the gospel, continually not trusting God when he says, come out of death into life. If you are in a continual state of, God, I don't believe you, you're not the type of person that gets there. You're not the type of person that enters his rest. So when, I, so when I'm reading that, when he says, for we who have believed enter that rest, it's, those are the type of people that enter that rest. So how does this relate to falling? Well, if you see in, in verse three, as he's quoting Psalm 95, he says, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. You notice when he says my wrath there? So, so because of, of their hardness of heart and because of their responses to, to the good news that came to them, God responds by saying, I swear you will not enter my rest. And what happens as a result of that, we see this falling is actually mentioned a few times in this whole section. The first time we saw it is in verse 12 of chapter three. It says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. We see it again in verse 17 in chapter three. And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And again in uh, verse 11 in our chapter, let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So he wants us to fear failing to reach it and he wants us to fear falling in this, in this whatever this falling is. I'm, I'm just trying to grapple with that. What is it? Well, for the children of Israel, it was physical death. It says their bodies fell. So is that the thing that God wants us to fear? Maybe. But um, actually, it could be something else. So in chapter 3 and verse 12, like I already quoted, that, that phrase for falling away from the living God, the Greek is, uh, is the word where we get the word apostasy. It's the, it's the falling away. It's, it's the getting to that state of where you, are, you have abandoned 
your faith. You have, you, you have abandoned your, conf, your confidence, your confession. And so if the author wants us to fear this falling, I really do think that he wants us to fear this apostasy, this place where we've given up our confession on Jesus and we're like, you know what, I just don't, there's been too many things. I don't believe it anymore. So here's what I think he wants us to fear. This repeated response over and over, God comes to you and he says, he says come out of death and into life. And you're like, no, I see better things over here. No, I, I don't believe you that what you have for me is life and it's better. That constant refusal that brings you to this place where God no longer, God cuts, cuts it off. He closes the door and he says, you will never enter my rest. He wants us to fear this. Now, who's us? Professing Christians. I'm just going to say professing Christians because as the wheat and the tares grow together, we don't know which is which. So we strive and we fear because we're told to hang on to our confession. That is the fact of the matter, you guys. Whether you want to argue about eternal security, whether you believe that or not, this exhortation of this passage says hang on. Because you don't want to fall by the same disobedience that the children of Israel did. So, here's, here's the call. Here's the call. Fall before you fall. Fall upon the mercy of Jesus before you fall like the children of Israel did. Fall upon his mercy fall to your knees, use the fear that he wants you to feel here and let it drive you to your knees and seek the Lord and say, I hang on for dear life. I'm not letting go. You are too worth it for me. You are too worthy to be praised. I don't care what happens in my life. I am not letting go of you, Jesus. Help me hang on to you. That's what I think the call of this passage is. And matter of fact, this fearing is actually the context of one of the most popular Bible verses that we know. The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Okay, we know that. But what's the context of that? But usually when we read that, we, we read it out of context. We don't really get the full idea of what it is. The context of that passage is fear. How do I know that? Because that is the whole context of this entire section, and he ends with this. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of whom to whom we must give account. Does that sound like to you that he's trying to draw up this healthy fear of God? Let's just read that. Let's start at verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of, whom, of him whom we must give account. Do you see how it fits into, look, this is why we must fear. Because God's gospel call is going out. And your heart is responding to it. And God's word, it is so, I love this, this passage. I've been like really just, it's been stirring in my head what, what is going on here as it's describing this, this word that's living and active, but it's like a sword, and, but it's sharper than a sword, and it's discerning, and it's like, because at first it sounds like a thing. You know, because like a sword is a thing, and, and, and it pierces, and it like a thing can pierce. 
but it's living and active, so it's not a thing. And, and, and it's discerning. The thing doesn't just discern. This, this is not a thing. This is spoken of as if it's God himself. You get that? You know, what's really cool is that the, the word for the, the word here is logos. And it's actually the same Greek word that we hit on in verse 2 where it says um, that the message came to us. The message there is logos. So that when the message of Jesus came to you, the word of God, when the word of God came to you, it came to you as if it was God himself uh, getting into your heart and discerning you and, and, and opening up your heart and exposing where you're really at. It's almost as if there's interaction going on between you and God concerning what he has said about his son, Jesus. It's so awesome. You know, I, I start to kind of geek out a little bit. And I think about like, like, what if there was this like superhero that like was able to like, you know, speak a message and then like turn into the message. And then like, you know, like, like, so it's you and you're like going into like people's hearts and you're like, okay, I'm going to like, I'm going to, I'm going to hear what you said in, 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 on that point And I'm going to argue with you and be like, no, that's not this. And then you're like, you know, like interacting with their hearts and you're just like poking around and like, I know that I don't want to be heretical about this, but consider Jesus the Logos, the Word. John 1.1, 1, 1, the Word was God. The Word was with God. And then the Word dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. This is uh, very similar to what Revelation 2.23 says. Um, let me see if I can find it here. Pretty sure I wrote it down. Revelation 2.23. Um, listen to this. This is really cool. It says, this is Jesus speaking. All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. That sound almost exactly like what we just read. Is that it's almost as if God himself, almost as if Jesus himself is discerning your thoughts as the word of God, as the message of Jesus comes to you. It's so cool. You know, I used to think, and, and typically I thought of the, the word of God as, or the message, almost like a, a coin that God drops like on the ground and like hoping that you'll pick it up and, you know, deposit it in your account. But I'm, I'm learning to think of the word of God as, and like, as it relates to God himself and his word. Like they're so inseparable that it's, it's less like the coin that you deposit and it's more like maybe, it's more like, I'm going to say maybe. Because it's like when you're dealing with the Trinity and like trying to compare things and using analogies, it's like I'm, I want to be careful. But I, but I think it's more like the fire of the sun and sunlight. Because you have the fire of the sun and then the sunlight is what comes from that and it brings life to, you know, like brings life to plant life and it, and it brings light into dark places and, and, it, and it gives vitamin D to our bodies and um, that, that God and his word are inseparable. And I, I think we need to think more along those lines because I think that'll change the way we hear the gospel. Don't pay attention to the mode or the messenger nearly as much as you're paying attention to what is being said. Because God himself is calling you out of death and into life through this gospel. So like I said, good gospel hearing practices will white knuckle your confession of faith in Jesus. And I think that as we close on this first, this, this first exhortation, this, this first imperative that we should fear, um, good gospel hearing feels alarm while you're hearing. 
You're, you're alarmed at the thought of what if I am not responding to this gospel? What if I'm not receptive? What if I'm not, what if, what if my heart is arguing with God as he's saying, my son was given to you so that you would have life? So, so you, you feel that alarm as you hear. That's a good gospel hearing habit. And the second, so the second imperative, that was the, the first imperative, imperative was fear. The second imperative is strive. In verse 11, he said, let us therefore strive to enter that rest. But I, I think before we can, um, before we get into this idea of striving, I think we, we need to lo- know a little bit more about this rest. So, so let's think a little bit more about what is this rest? What is it? So, I'm th- so three things that I, that I think that, that this passage reveals about this rest. It's God's place. It's an offer of grace. And it's worth the race. It's, it's God's place. It's an offer of grace. And it's worth the race. So, it's God's place. Look at what it says in our passage over and over. In verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering, whose rest? Whose rest? His rest. Keep going. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter. Whose rest? My rest. And again, a little bit later, a couple of verses later, they shall not enter my rest. So notice whose rest it is. And, and I think the coolest part about this is that it's just not just the, saying that it's my rest, I really don't think that it's just saying it's the rest that God gives. It is, but I think it's more than that. I think it's God's rest, meaning the very rest that God experiences. My rest, the rest that I experience. That is what I want to give you, what I, what I experience. And so um, we have a little bit more descriptions here in, in, in verse three at the end of it. And I actually stopped short earlier. So let's get back to it. At the end of it, after he says, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. He then says, although his works were finished, from the foundation of the world. So think about this, you guys. God's rest is is God's rest because the work was his. What work? Well, I think the first thing that points out is creation. So he created all things and and when he says it's my rest, he, 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 he created all things he stepped back and he said, he said, ah, oh, I did that. that. That is good. He said, it is good, right? And then he created mankind. And then what did he say? It is very good. That, what is that? That's satisfaction. That's joy. That's joy in his work. He looks at it and he goes, he goes, ah, oh, that's good. That's a good work. That's good completed work. So there it is. That's, that's his rest. It's God's joy and God's satisfaction. And when he looks back and he looks at what he did, that is the kind of rest that, that, that is being described here. And obviously, the best way, I think the most, probably the height of God's joy and his completion of his work is where? On the cross. When, when the phrase came out of the mouth of Jesus, what was it? You guys already know it. It is finished. Imagine the joy and the and the. Um, the sense of completion that, that God and the Trinity felt in that moment. Imagine the rest when he says, my rest. Imagine what he felt. 
it's finished. It's, it's a completed work. It's so good. I've atoned for the sins of my people. I have defeated death. I have conquered the grave. It doesn't have a hold on any of you anymore. It's good. It is very good. Because now there's a recreation Based on what Jesus did, we talk about this, this, this aspect of the gospel that Jesus is the, the new Adam, right? He, he begins the new recreation where he's recreating all things. He's, he's restoring all things. So it's this new completed work of creation. This is his rest. It's God's place. It's God's joy. It's God's satisfaction. This is the offer. This is the promise. But it's also, so that the first, it's God's place. Second, it's an offer of grace. Did you notice one of the main points that the author was making here? In the very beginning, in verse one, the promise of entering his rest still stands. And again, later on, he, he says twice, that um, this word remains, this promise of entering his rest remains for the children of God. It remains. So what does that tell you about the nature of this promise? It's an offer of grace. It's God's open arms saying, look, you guys, I'm still here. I'm still promising this to you. And God, in his rest, when he sat down and he enjoyed what he had completed, he didn't have an obligation to invite anybody into that. But he wants you in there with him. He wants you reconciled with him. He wants you restored to him and your relationship. He wants your sins forgiven. He wants you to be not only saved, but sanctified. And he wants you to hang on so that you can get to that final destination. He wants you there. And that's an offer of grace from him. That's also him not giving up on you. By, by making that promise. This is an offer of, uh, of, of rest for weary pilgrims. Do you feel like a weary pilgrim today? I think a lot of us do. That is because we are. We are weary pilgrims. And who knows this better than God? Nobody knows this better than him. Why do you think he presented this promise of rest? Because he knows our weakness. He knows that we are just dying to get through this thing. God, please just get me, to the, get me through this, 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 this weighty season, this, this experiences of death and brokenness and, and, and rejection from the world and, and a place where I don't feel like I, can, I don't fit in. And, I, and it's the same feeling that the children of Israel felt God, please just give us a city of our own. Will you please just get us there? Just get us to that place where we can just set up our own government and where our enemies aren't fighting against us this whole time and, and we can just rest. We can set up everything. We can set up the temple. We can set up our own uh, rulers and, and we can finally just take a deep breath and be like, oh, we're finally here. Man, that was, a, that was a long road, but we're here. God did it. Who but God knows that you need that the most. Nobody knows you need it the most. Nobody understands that you need it the most, more than God does. So he presents it to you as a promise and an offer of grace. And the third that we learn about this rest is that um, it's worth the race. It's worth it. He, he wouldn't be emphasizing this rest so much and telling us strive to enter it if it wasn't a big deal. It's a big deal, you guys. When God promises you something, he, he, he doesn't, uh, he doesn't give you something that's low quality. Okay, he gives you his best. And so when he's saying, look, there's this thing called my rest. 
I'm going to give it to you. And it's going to be awesome. It's worth striving for. It's worth hanging on for. It's worth never letting go. It's worth pushing through. So this idea of rest, I think it puts it out as kind of like a prize at the end of a race. You know, um, when I was studying this, I was, I was wrestling through this idea of like how much of this rest is now, how much of this rest is later. And, and it was actually kind of grating on me that every single time I tried to, that I thought that it was talking about now, that it actually wasn't. It's talking about a future grace, a promise of something that we will enter into. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't promises of rest for us now. There clearly are. But in this section of scripture that we are dealing with right now today, that's not what he's emphasizing. Promises of rest now, oh, oh yeah, they're here. J Jesus himself, the embodiment of God's rest, what did he say? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Okay? It's there. It's in the scriptures. But, but this, this chunk, it's not what he's concerned about. Right now, what he's not trying to give you a pillow, he's trying to sound the alarm. All right, guys, there's reason for concern here. You might be actually wandering off. You might actually be, be letting go of your confession. Alarm, fear, strive. Okay, the, the word of God is, is, is not out of balance by, by only giving us uh, um, the things that will make us feel better in the moment, okay? There are promises. I just like was in quick conversation with, with a couple of people on, on the way in. And uh, it's like, how you doing? Well, I'm good, I'm, but I'm just kind of hanging on, you know, like waiting to, for the promises that God has given me to, to be fulfilled. And isn't that how we live? Well, what does that do? Promises anchor us in hope. If we didn't have promises, we wouldn't have this thing called hope where we look to the future where, where we can look at this little season of our life and go, man, there's, there's confusion and darkness and I don't understand what, what this is. And, and if we aren't given promises for future, for future grace, we wouldn't have hope for the future. Does that make sense? God is depositing promises in our hearts so that we would hope for the future. And that hope is a propeller for striving. It's a propeller for good gospel habits, good gospel hearing habits. It's, it's, it's like gives you that, that extra grip, that, that white knuckle that you, that you want to do about your confession in Jesus. These promises give you that extra grip like, oh, I'm not letting go. Why? Because I see there's, there's stuff that's way better ahead. There is, there is a destination that this train is taking me to. There is a destination. So it's like a prize. It's like a future prize that we hang on for. But I want you to continue to imagine what this rest might be like. What might this rest be like? Look at verses uh, 8 and 9. Chapter 4, verse, verses 8 and 9. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So imagine that. Okay, so he's using Joshua. Who's Joshua? Joshua is the one, that one leader who, who, who they, the children of Israel look to like, oh man, he's the one that led us that led our people to the land. They took possession of it. They set up their city. And what is he doing here? If Joshua had given them rest, what's the implication? Joshua didn't give them rest. Wait, I thought Joshua actually did lead them into, the, into God's rest. Well, again, like we said, that was a type. It was a type of rest. That wasn't a complete rest. It wasn't the fulfillment yet. It was like, God's like, hey, I'm going to give you my rest. 
And what, you know, in that, what, what he's saying is, I'm going to give you a, a taste of my rest. But he's bringing out Joshua as a type of Christ. Joshua couldn't give, or any man, or anything cannot give you this final rest. Jesus is the better Joshua. Joshua couldn't give rest. Jesus does. You know that, that word, uh, that name Joshua in the Greek is the same exact. It's exactly the same as the name Jesus. There's no distinction. You, you look at the Greek Joshua, you look at the Greek Jesus, it's exactly the same. So it's, it's really cool, actually, that it's, it, it points even more to the fact that Joshua is a type of Jesus. Jesus leads us to the promised land, the final rest. Jesus is leading us through that. Yeah, he's done a work. Yeah, he's died and he's risen and he's ascended to the right hand of the Father. He's done all that. But look, his work isn't done yet, right? There's still work to be done. There's still a final destination where he's going to come back and he's going to finish what he started and he's going, to, he's going to establish his kingdom forever. And that is the fulfillment. And that is how Jesus fulfills the promise of rest fully. So we strive for this. God is saying, strive to enter this rest. Strive how? Through good gospel hearing practices, good gospel hearing habits. That is how we hang on. That is how we work hard. And we don't work for our salvation. Maybe I need to clarify that. We don't work for our salvation. It is finished, right? Jesus accomplished our salvation. But this confession, this confidence in Jesus, that is what he is telling us to work on. And to be careful how we hear. So, the other aspect that I want to touch on here is the fact that we, we, if we're honest, we have to admit that in the midst of this good gospel call, this good call of God to rest, there are other calls to rest. Meaning, you know you're weary. You, you feel the weariness and you feel weak and you know that God is calling you into his rest and to fear and to strive, but you've got these other calls. You've got these other calls that, that, that this conviction that, I, that there is something more, that I need rest. I'm a weary pilgrim. And what do these offers provide? False promises of rest, that final rest. So some of those, I'm just going to name a few. Hey, come, come binge watch. Could be that. You'll feel, you'll feel that rest that you're looking for. Come, come you're, you're not good enough, so maybe if you work hard enough and get enough done that you'll feel better about yourself and then you'll finally rest. What about, hey, come and retire. That's gonna give you the rest that you need. How about, hey, come, come and make yourself numb. Dull your senses with substances. That's a false call. How about stimulation, the opposite? They're just like, fill my senses with things that are just going to stimulate me all the time. That will make me feel rested. How about leaving your situation? Come and leave your situation. It's too hard. It's too hard for you. You don't deserve this. You don't deserve this, this, this striving and this, this, all this stuff that is making you frustrated. You don't deserve it. Just leave your circumstance. Then you'll finally get that rest. Guys, all of these things not, are not necessarily wrong in themselves. But when you're seeking this thing as the final fulfillment as that, that thing that is that final rest that you need, that's when we need to stop and we need to remember that we have a true promise that we are hanging on for. And that might motivate you to get back to these good gospel hearing practices. 
So some of these habits might be reading and studying and memorizing scripture. It's, it's putting those promises before you. It's being intentional about that. It's keeping the hope of the, of the, of, of the hoping in those promises before you. So with all that said, you guys, that's a lot to take in. Um, let's, consider, let's consider how we hear the gospel. Because it's good news. It's good news. And, and it is strange that our heart would not want to believe good news. It is strange. But the fact of the matter is that we all deal with it. It is, a, it is a reality that we all must come to, come to, to, come, to re, come to that reality. So that's, that's it for now. We're going to go through some questions. We're going to continue to wrestle through this and think through this and, and work through this together. We're going to hopefully uh, pray for one another and exhort one another to, to, to strive, to uh, to hold on to this confession, to, uh, to continue with good gospel hearing habits. And so we're going to break up into groups, um, these you know, small groups, so we can discuss some of these questions. But uh, before we do, let's go before the Lord. Father, we, we want to... We, we want to respond to your voice in a way that, that speaks that you are a good God, that you are one to be trusted, that when you call us out of death and into life, that we eagerly listen and eagerly jump in and eagerly believe God, put in the hearts of your people a white-knuckle grip to hang on to their confession and their confidence in you. God, give that to me. And help us as a community to be in each other's lives so that we can come alongside each other and exhort one another. God, I just pray for this time that you that your Holy Spirit would lead it. And God, you'd help us to, to grow together. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.